Welcome to the Union Jews Podcast. UK's only Things Union show, produced for your downloadable digital delight and appreciation. In this week's episode, is better mediation the solution to unresolved conflict that is costing UK industry more than £30 billion a year? The stakes are high, as we will hear from lead mediator David Little. Plus Mel Sims thought for the week and Josiah Mortimer's Radical Roundup. Hello and welcome to Union Jews, the UK's only all things union podcast. I'm Simon Sapper and in this week's absolutely stuffed episode, we've got David Little, who is the chief executive of the TCM Group, Britain's leading, perhaps Europe's leading mediator, has mediated in more industrial action disputes, employee relations disputes, and probably you and I have had hot dinner. Some really interesting insights about the future of work and why mediation is the way forward. Controversial stuff for some listeners, I am sure. We've also got Glasgow University's Professor of Work and Employment, Mel Sims, with her thought for the week all about why evidence-based policymaking is so important. And of course, we're delighted to welcome back Josiah Mortimer with his radical roundup. But first, a question, a question for you listeners. How many people, as a percentage of the working age population, are working at home at the moment? Have a think about that. Got a number? Keep it in your head. Listen out for Mel's piece later on in the show when all will be revealed. Now, in case you've missed it, but I'm sure you haven't, this week is Heart Unions Week. If you go onto social media with the hashtag Heart, with capital H, Unions, with capital U, but all one word, you'll find dozens, hundreds, thousands of illustrations of all the great things, innovative things, important things that unions are doing. So, without further ado, it seems appropriate to welcome Josiah Mortimer to the show for his weekly Radical Roundup. Over to you, Josiah. Thanks, Simon. First up, almost a third of all NHS staff have had the coronavirus and health workers desperately need gold standard PPE, according to the GMB union. In a survey of more than 1600 ambulance workers across the country, 37% of them have had coronavirus, with a massive 84% saying they'd caught it well on the job. The GMB union says poor PPE is to blame and the union is calling on the government and Public Health England to urgently review PPE guidance for health workers. Next up, Unite has welcomed leaked reports that Cameron-era NHS reforms are to be reversed. The government is reportedly planning to reverse market-led changes to the NHS in England that were introduced in 2012. The changes would aim to tackle bureaucracy and encourage health services, from hospitals to surgeries and social care, to work more closely. The draft policy paper also says the health secretary would take more direct control over NHS England. Unite's Gail Cartmail said the 2012 reforms were a disaster, fragmenting services and giving too much sway to the private sector. Kent Police has come under fire after confiscating the mobile phone and memory card of freelance photographer Andy Aitchison, who was arrested while covering a protest at Napier Barracks in Folkestone. The freelance photographer was supported by the National Union of Journalists and the Bindman's law firm, following his arrest and confiscation of journalistic material. 
He was kept in a police cell for seven hours despite him clearly attending a demonstration as a member of the press. A host of leading academics, celebrities, campaign groups and unions have joined health campaign group Keep Our NHS Public to launch a so-called People's Covid Inquiry. Campaigners believe the time for a Covid inquiry is now to analyse why the UK has suffered over 100,000 deaths and what lessons should be learned to inform future decision and policy making. Overseeing proceedings will be the renowned human rights barrister Michael Mansfield QC. And participants will include the chair of Independent Sage, Sir David King, Lancet editor Richard Horton, as well as frontline workers. And finally, yoga teachers in the UK have voted to form a new branch of the Independent Workers Union of Great Britain which organises precarious and gig economy workers, including Uber and delivery drivers. It's the first union for yoga teachers in the UK, and the second ever in the world after unionised yoga in New York. Key concerns include unpaid overtime and poverty pay, as well as a lack of basic workers' rights like sick pay and annual leave. Members also report an endemic culture of bullying, harassment and discrimination. That's all from this week's Radical Roundup in the Union Jews podcast. Find the full Radical Roundup on leftfootforward.org. Thanks, Josiah. I was really pleased you picked up on the yoga teachers unionization story. That was that's really cheering for the soul in the sense that it shows that people everywhere are recognizing the value of collective action and collective voice. I just want to give a special shout out to the GMB union and their members working for British Gas, which is part of the Centrica group, who are still in dispute over this insane, absolutely insane proposal from the company to fire everyone and then rehire those they want, but on worse terms and conditions. I, and if that, if that you know, doesn't sound bad enough, let me read you a tweet that you, you may have seen already from a, a British gas worker. Uh, he said, for me, British gas died last night. To send out an email saying that they have deducted from our wages future strike days that haven't even happened yet is a new low. All this to force through lower terms and conditions to make us work longer hours for free over 20 years service. Well, I mean, that's been retweeted about 4,000 times already. And you can see why this is this is crazy. This is crazy. British Gas, listen, take a step back, look, look at what's happening. You are destroying employee engagement in destroying your reputation you need you need your employees to be your ambassadors you don't just need them to go out and fix boilers or install new kit or or answer calls at a, a customer service center or whatever you need them to believe in the product and the values of the company they're working for otherwise you don't get the return business you don't get the reputational advantage which is crucial in a competitive marketplace this is just so short term Get round the table and talk, sort it out, negotiate, negotiate. It's the only way while GMB members are on strike, they're going to help out in food banks and all sorts of other things. And of course, you know, it's perishingly cold. It's freezing cold at the moment across most of, most of the country. If you ever needed British gas to be firing on all cylinders, as it were, it was na it's now. And instead, they're just, you know, they're not putting down the shovel while the hole's getting the hole's getting deeper. So, so admiration, support, solidarity to the GMB, and the West Midlands region of the GMB have come up with what for me is the campaign song of the year so far with their take on Billy Joel's "We Didn't Start the Fire," and uh, we, we might just play a bit of that campaign song later on in the program. Now, it's my great pleasure to welcome our special guest for this episode, David Little. David 
is the chief exec of an organization called TCM, which specializes in mediation and mediation training. And I know you might be kind of scratching your head, as it were, and thinking, well, well, this guy's not a trade unionist. What's he doing on union dues? But but actually his work, his work personally and the work his company does directly affects what we do and what we need to do when we're representing our members in negotiating change or fending off some attack on terms and conditions. And that whole process of trying to find common ground, trying to find a way through what seems to be an intractable problem, even if you solve that problem, how do you move from a one-off sticking plaster to doing something more preventative and predictable? All that sort of stuff is something that David's got a lot of experience in and very strong views on. So it seems to me that it directly feeds into what we as trade unionists do every day of our working lives. Now, David and I first met on a Radio Scotland programme, and there was a feature about Brexit negotiations, which, of course, were going nowhere, you know, were bogged down, obviously, and they wanted two views, one from a mediator and one from a negotiator. They thought there would be a difference of opinion, but, of course, you know, David and I ended up agreeing that the only way to resolve this is by dialogue, is by getting everyone who needs to be round the table round the table, of identifying what the common objective is, what could everyone sign up to as an ultimate an end point, and then talking and talking and understanding each other's position. Jaw jaw better than war war, as Churchill said about diplomacy and conflict. So I hope you find what he's got to say interesting. He certainly is very forthright in in his views. And if you can if you can hear some strange kind of musical noises in the background, you're not imagining it. There was actually bird song in the background when we recorded uh, this discussion. Now there may be snow and ice on the ground here in South London at the moment, but it's good to know spring is coming, nevertheless. David Little, Chief Executive Officer of the TCM Group, TCM Group being the HR Consultancy of the Year at the moment, best-selling author of a book on managing conflict, a practical guide to resolution in, in the workplaces. Thank you so much for spending time with us on the Union Jews podcast. Oh, Simon, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks very much for inviting me. Listeners may not be aware of the roots of, of the TCM Group. I mean, you've been a proponent of total conflict management for over 30 years, starting off with some really difficult cases in terms of community conflicts in, in Leicester. And the group is now one of the biggest providers of, of mediation and training in Europe. What's the market like, if you like? What, because we see a lot of things where there's, there's a, almost a binary thing going on. Trade unions will be able to negotiate but if employers are resistant, then we quickly drift into conflict, uh, formal or, or informal. So I know that unresolved conflict costs billions and billions of pounds each year to British industry. But in real terms, especially in the, in the current climate, what's the market for the services you're providing? It's, it's, it's vast, Simon. I think you know, the area that we concentrate on would be predominantly on workplace disputes. I'm thinking here in colleague to colleague, colleague to manager within teams and within groups. But we've also been looking at and using mediation for a number of years in, in, in the industrial relations and workplace relations, employee relations space. And there are kind of two areas I think mediation is, is growing very rapidly. I think the first one is in relation to a relationship breakdown between at a local level, perhaps between a local manager and a local area, uh, a local union representative. And mediation, uh, I think here about Royal Mail in particular and other organisations that we've worked with, using mediation to resolve issues at a local level to prevent the dispute escalating very quickly that then can result in, in perhaps a, a wider industrial dispute. And of course, using the principles of mediation, I'm talking about collaboration, 
listening, positive engagement, principled negotiation, using those uh, techniques and tools to promote a more positive, collective environment within which negotiations and conversations can happen. And again, we have some really good examples where we've been deploying those principles in those relationships between management and unions uh, in organisations. So if, if those values that you just described, David, are the characteristics that make for successful me- mediation, what does the output look like? If you've got those ingredients that are enough to put people in, in the mood or in the space for mediation, what does success look like as a result of that? That's a great question. I mean, I think if I start with what it isn't, Simon, because some people think this is a great big hug, we're going to hold hands and go skipping through the meadow singing Kumbaya. Uh-huh. Just, yeah. just in case, I'm sure no one, yeah. no one that listened to this really genuinely thought of it. Let's be honest. I think there are people perhaps who, who still hold that view of, of mediation. It's all very nice. It's all very friendly. And it's only really for the, uh, for the easier disputes where everyone gets on. So mediation is, is the, the benefit of mediation is, is part of it is, is, is engaging in the process. And what people tell me from engaging in mediation is they gain better insights about what the other person's point of view is, the other side's perspective. We can really listen to each other and listen to understand, not listening to defend, you know, that classic defend, attack, win, lose, right, wrong dynamic that we see in so many negotiations. This is a different approach. It's about listening to try and gain meaning and insight and actually understanding what our shared interests and shared needs are. And this is a really important point, particularly as we're coming through the, uh, the hopefully, hopefully the latter stages now of, of COVID. It's about focusing not just on our internal needs and interests, but also looking at you know, citizens and communities and thinking about sustainable business practices, the needs of our, of our environment, the needs of our, of our citizens, the needs of our employees in the workplace. So the mediation process is about bringing people together to gain insights and so on. That's the primary output. Whether or not everyone agrees or not, Simon, is irrelevant. Mediation isn't about everyone slapping each other on the back and agreeing. It's about disagreeing well. That's the key here. And as we're disagreeing well, then actually what we start to see are perhaps some green shoots of agreement, convergence, common ground. But we also respect there are going to be differences. You know, clearly one of the key roles of the, of the union is to, is to hold the, uh, the employer to account to get the best deal for, it, for its members. And, and that's not always going to be you know, nice, friendly conversation. But it does mean it's about how do we have those conversations where we disagree in a way which protects the relationship between both sides. And that's what's really important here, protecting that relationship and giving everyone the best chance of getting some positive outcome, a resolution. Right. I know, I understand. I, I understand absolutely the, the situation you describe. But how, how then do you move uh, in a situation where, where you've solved a problem, you've prevented a, an escalation of a dispute, you've given more insights and all the rest of it, What's then the pathway of moving from a kind of one-off short-term cure to embedded, robust prevention? Fantastic. I mean, it's a re- again, a really, really important question. That, you know, I've got really happy memories, again, working with Parcel Force Worldwide. I'm sure they won't mind me mentioning them. They're in the, they're in the book that you very kindly referenced. Developed a, an, an industrial relations strategy called Table of Success. And what I loved about that and what I love when I'm working with organisations here is when unions, uh, management, HR, what I call the modern triumvirate, the heads of state of the organisation, come together and use their knowledge and skills not to have a battle and, 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 and the confrontation that often that we see, but using their, their, their wisdom, their skills, their knowledge and their expertise to predict, anticipate and work in a proactive way to design systems, 
and structures within the industrial and employee relations environment which allows them to resolve issues quickly, effectively, and in a more efficient and constructive way. So I think the, the, the learning that we take perhaps from, a, from an industrial dispute or a, from a very challenging uh, collective negotiation would be used to inform the culture of the organisation and using those principles within the uh, employee relations strategy. And that's what I think is sometimes missing. You know, I look at going to organisations and they blow dust off, off, the, off the ER strategy and it goes back to sort of you know, mid-1970s. But actually when I talk to people in this modern pluralist environment which, which they're working in, union reps, managers, HR, they tell me it's about spotting issues early, listening constructively, positively engaging. But when I read the strategic framework, the AR strategy and the, and the documentation that supports it and the culture, it's almost the antithesis of that. So it's about aligning what is happening on the ground with the design and the development of these frameworks that, that support good employee relations in the business. Right, yeah. I, I mean, I, I can think of examples in my negotiating days where we did exactly that and we came up with those procedures that were clearly understood, easy to use, provided visible success. But equally, I can think of many circumstances, more circumstances, unfortunately, where it's almost been too much trouble. It's almost been too much trouble for, say, the employer to engage in negotiation. It gets too draining takes up too much resource, gets in the way of other strategic objectives, and then you get to some very difficult places, I, I think. I mean, difficult for all, all stakeholders, such as the current wave of total fire and rehire scenarios that we've, we've seen and are still going on. How, how do you convert those who are mediation-averse? I mean, it should be, it should be a no-brainer. I mean, the, the, what I struggle with is it should be a no-brainer because the value to productivity, employee engagement and so on is, is clear and unambiguous. But there are still too many employers who say, I can't be bothered with all that, I'm in charge, I've got the power, this is what we're going to do. And that begets a response from the union which is necessarily defensive. And you get into then a vicious cycle rather than a virtuous circle. Let's walk down the high street in two months together, Simon, and look at the shop windows relating to the management systems and leadership styles that, that match your, your model. And I bet they've got soap on the windows and they're closed down. This is a, a massive imperative for businesses. I think businesses, the successful businesses of the future will recognise that the picture that you've just described is not tenable, it's not sustainable, it's not meaningful, and it's not going to deliver impact. Impact measured in terms of shareholder value, stakeholder value is a really critical measure here. Sustainable business practices, a commitment to environmental factors, social government, social and governance factors. It's about delivering and deploying a, 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 an approach which brings everyone together to meet the, the, the demands and needs of the, the business. And you actually answered my question to an extent because the evidence is already there. You know, if we look at the UK figures pre-Brexit, now one of the, the, dis, the disengagement, only 30% of the workforce are engaged according to Engage for Success one of the least productive nations in the, in the G12. Our, our, our well-being, obesity, mental health factors within the workplace, many of our metrics are really, really terrible, nay, woeful. And our response to many of these issues I see within organisations is to apply a policy framework oftentimes, a formal, rigid, litigation-inspired, confrontational, reductive, often divisive and confrontational system to resolve issues. Now, I don't think... You know, I don't think one has to be particularly one of the enlightened 
<laughs> to say that model of business is not a sustainable model. And what I think, it, I, I think it undermines the role of the modern trade union. I think it positions the trade union and management as a consistently, persistently confrontational dynamic. And I think when I speak to trade union reps, whether it's at a, at a local level or indeed on a national uh, committee, they've got fantastic insights about what's going on in the business. They know what's going on for their members. They're listening to their members' needs every single minute of every single day. And I think they are well positioned to give a powerful voice to their employees. And if all it is, is every now and again, once a year in a, in a pay negotiation, we roll out the sort of tables and sit and face off from each other. And every now and again, there's a bit of a blip. And generally, uh, we kind of avoid each other. But actually, secretly, we get into rooms and do the deal behind closed doors. No one, don't tell anyone we're doing it. Um, you know, it's a, you know that is not good, clear, transparent, coherent, meaningful, sustainable, effective industrial and employee relations. And like I said, let's walk down the high street together. Let's go and fly some on some planes together. Let's go and look at the industrial areas and ask ourselves some really key questions. Are those businesses that are that are meeting the, the paradigm or the shape that you're that you've been describing? Are they sustaining? And I think we can look clear and say, no, they are not. Well, uh, I'd be very happy to walk down the high street with you in that way. I'm not quite so sure about getting on a plane yet. But, no, well, um, I think that's a fair point. <laughs> yeah. Let's wait until this is all over and then we'll go on holiday together, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the situation you're describing is absolutely rational and logical and obvious and would boost engagement and productivity and therefore the durability of, uh, of, of enterprises. But, but we see some big beasts not behaving in that way at the moment. Heathrow Airport, British Gas, British Airways, and, and, and we, see, we see an unfortunate confluence, if you like, of some aggressive, you could say, ex desperate uh, management behaviour aligned with a regulatory environment which actually kind of encourages short-termism, encourages low productivity, and so on. So we've got a, we've got a hell of a job, really, to, to turn the ship around. And I wondered to what extent you shared or disagreed with that analysis and secondly to what extent green issues are a game changer because if you have green issues as articulated by workers who are millennials you suddenly have a whole new dynamic that enters the value system about work and about employment absolutely absolutely i, I agree with your analysis but i think if i saw conflict as irreconcilable when I first looked at it, which most conflicts look like, and most of these difficult situations appear to be embedded, ingrained, dogmatic and irreconcilable, I, I don't know what job I would do, but I'd have probably given up mediation and conflict resolution a, a very, very long time ago. So I love the challenge and live for the challenge. And my experience is there are a significant amount of people, I'm going to use the jargony term stakeholders, but there's a significant people out there who are frustrated and concerned, whether it's around environmental factors, whether it's around employee engagement, whether it's around well-being, flexible working, digitalization. There are some voices out there who are people who want and need to be heard. And I think the important thing for organizations and the successful organizations is they need to listen and understand how to engage with their, with, with their stakeholders. And I'm really po real positive to see a real focus within shareholders within annual general meetings and a push from shareholders who are holding 
the organisations and the, and, the, and the chief executive's feet to the fire in terms of their commitment to the environment, to sustainability, to, to good business practices. So, so certainly one would look to shareholders to, to, to hold those C, CEOs to account and increasingly that is happening and that's good news. But let's think about how they're being trained. Where on our MBAs are we teaching our C-suite leaders the skills they need to have compassionate and collaborative conversations. The focus so often is on competition, you know, wealth generation, and it's almost at all cost. So perhaps we need to be talking to our business schools about how we're teaching and developing leadership capabilities. Within our performance and reward systems, Simon, if we're only rewarding financial success, then that's all that our CEOs and, and C-suite leaders and others in the organisations will be driven to achieve. If the measure of the success of the organisation is a happier and more uh, engaged workforce, for instance, or the delivery against a set of core values and principles, then I can be pretty confident within those organisations and businesses that our C-suite leaders will start to move in that general direction. If we start to see, you know, I often say to, to organisations, that peel the values. You've already got a blueprint in your organisation. You've named a few of them, and I've worked with some of those. They've already got the blueprint. It's called their core values. Bring the values to life in the way that you lead, the way that you run your HR processes and your employee relations processes. So there's a challenge there, but I see that that challenge is being addressed by stakeholder activism, certainly the, the, the increase of activism within society and organisations, but critically, and this is really important, our leaders and managers and unions need to get a darn sight better at really hearing and really listening to what these stakeholders are saying. And that creates that social contract, this powerful social contract in the organisation. And I would go as far as to say that the social contract will be the driver of the successful business of the future. Yeah, I can see the vision and I would buy, it, buy into the vision as well. In this, in this scenario, and you know, you've worked in non-unionised and unionised environments, and in some of the unionised environments I know you've worked in have been really challenging in it from uh, an IR perspective. When, when you see the trade union movement working at its best, what, what's the difference in your experience that, that, that the active engagement of trade unions bring to the process? I think a, a deep insight and understanding of the needs, the goals, the motivations, the hopes, the fears, the aspirations of, of the workforce. And employee voice is such a critical aspect around bringing, helping organisations to shape the systems and, and the structures. You know, I think I'm a massive fan of transformational leadership or, or servant models of leadership. And a servant leader or transformational leadership is really about leaders listening and positively engaging. And, 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 this, and not just listening to the voices, Simon, of the people who agree with them. We can all get into a room with a bunch of people who say, yes, yes, yes. That, yeah. That's no good. I, we, I, we, the good leaders need to hear from people who are going to challenge them, who, who are going to, to, to dissent and disagree. And I think the role of the union is to dissent and to disagree and to challenge and to really push and to hold the organisation to account. But in order to be able to do that, there has to be a positive engagement. We have to go back to, that, to my original point around disagreeing well and being able to build dissent. We're fearful of dissent in our, in, in, our, in our businesses. We're fearful of dissent because we're fearful of conflict. We're fearful of the fight and flight and all of that dynamic going on. And you know, many we forget our leaders and union reps are human beings. They, they experience that cortisol, you know, the, the amygdala firing away, and it all becomes very emotional and. And, and, and difficult. 
And we're not very good at handling it. And I think people are scared of it. And it kind of becomes, you know, it becomes very combative and uh, binary, as is used the term earlier. So I think for, for the best union uh, activism and union involvement and engagement, but it requires, it can't be the unions who are moving towards management and leadership and HR. There has to be a, a, a conversation between those three core functions about what it is that's important to them. So it's not saying to unions, you know, you need to change the way that you deliver trade union, is, uh, your, your role as a trade union. It's about the HR function. I mean, we haven't even talked about the, the role of HR here. I mean, goodness no, they really do need to change and think about their role within, within this. You know, the, mm. the, the, the frameworks that HR use are, you know, so divisive and so pernicious and so destructive and so damaging. And until HR really start to recognize that their policy frameworks are fanning the flames of fury and anger and HR really need to take a step back and think about how their policy frameworks are, are, are pushing the union into this more confrontational route. So it's not, I can't, I, you can identify the need for unions to change, but that can't be identified in isolation. It has to be recognising that our leaders and the HR and management function also need to get into a room and work out what is it we're trying to do here and how can we do it better. No, well, I think I think you're right. We we, we haven't really touched on on the role of HR, and that that could make the that could be the subject for a whole new podcast, whole new podcast series. Thanks for that, David. That's my next project lined up. Um, but but that leads me to think about your your book, your first book on managing conflict, dealt with about dealt with grievance procedures, and, and essentially said, look, you know, if you've got a formal procedure, then you've got a cultural problem that you you need you need to address. But you're now working on a, a second book. So how do you follow how you know, how do you follow that? What's, what's the second book going to be about and when when might we see it? Well, thank you for your positive uh, feedback on, on my first book. So the second book is called Transformational Culture, Develop a Person-Centered Organization to Drive Organizational Effectiveness. And the, the book is focusing on how organizations can move from a retributive culture, a culture where it's about blame and retribution and all of the systems within the organization are geared up towards blame and retribution, towards a just, fair, inclusive, sustainable, and high-performing organization. So really what I'm trying to do is provide a route map. I'm not saying this is a, a, how to do it, because obviously every organization is very different. But I'm trying to provide a bit of a structure and a route map that organizations might follow. So in brief, what I'm, what I'm starting off by doing is, is thinking about the core values and how we can align our values into our leadership behaviors, into our uh, employee relations systems into our HR processes. So they become a golden thread that run through the organization, almost bringing those, those values down off the lobby wall and making them a meaningful part of the organization. There's a real focus in the text on evidence-based decision-making. And I, I, I don't know about people who are listening to this, but sometimes you know, I hold my head in my hands when I look at how we're making decisions because there's a really good data set in the organization that no one's looking at and no one's interrogating and looking to understand. And, I'm a great believer as a mediator in the power of storytelling. I love sitting in a room and just letting people talk and listening to their stories. So I'll be looking at the power of storytelling and gaining insights from what, what qualitative data, I guess we'd call it. Uh, in terms of the policy frameworks, I do deal with the policy frameworks. And the, the grievance and disciplinary procedures, Simon, for me, are the antithesis of everything that is good about being a human, decent human being. They drive a culture of fear, of exclusion, of intimidation, of confrontation. They're about belittling, undermining, and destroying relationships, self-esteem, morale, and good team working. And for me, I think it's very difficult for a, a union colleague, an HR professional, 
or indeed an organizational leader, to describe themselves as compassionate and progressive, yet knowingly dragging people through these policy frameworks where we know the end of it is going to be a very damaged individual and a damaged team. So I'm offering an alternative. I believe the time has come for the statutory, well, they're not even statutory, the statutory disciplinary uh, dismissal uh, regulations were, were repealed back in 2007. So we've got this massive public policy. Let's not remind, let's not forget that um, in 2017, the Employment Tribunal fee regime, I'm sure one of your, your, your listeners would, will know this, or a number of your listeners will know this very well. Let's just remind ourselves of the words that were used, Simon, unlawful and discriminatory. A barrier to justice. Come on, this is public policy on dispute resolution. So we have a, we have a framework called a disciplinary and grievance procedure that no one seems to look at. But when I've looked at it, and I've started talking to people about this, and I've started going out and listening to people, I'm yet to meet one person, and please, if you've got a listener to listen to this podcast, you can give me an example of a disciplinary or grievance procedure which has resulted in a better outcome for the individuals, a better outcome for the organisation, and a, a, a more a successful solution, or a successful solution, please send it to me because I've been asking for 10 years and I've not had a single one example yet of these processes delivering good outcomes. But here they are, sat on our intranet sites and just, you know, no one's, no one's challenging them. So I am challenging them. I'm calling them out, Simon. And I'm saying that it's time for a focus, a resolution revolution, as I call it, to move away from those procedures and embrace a resolution framework and a resolution framework which promotes dialogue and encourages a much more sophisticated, um, compassionate way of resolving issues while still ensuring there's full accountability. Now, the organisation can still take robust action when it's required, but it's front-loaded with all of the approaches around facilitation, restorative justice, mediation and dialogue that you would expect. So, yeah, lots of organisations are now in, embedding it and uh, it's exciting. It is indeed. It is exciting. I mean, um, you know, you may regret actually making that uh, that invitation for stories. I'm just, I'm just, uh, I'm just going to search through my files as well. I'm sure I've got a few to give you, uh, because because of course part of the challenge of, of this is you, you spoke about about people behaving as adults. We see too many employers uh, and sometimes other stakeholders as well who who are better described as juvenile delinquents uh, with all the destructive connotations that 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 that, that has. And we also, you know, we, we also have needed to use grievance procedures as a kind of refuge in the face of some, some difficult, challenging, overbearing ma- management procedures. So there is a real transformational potential here. And I agree with you that if, you, if we can all add fuel to the, that process, we'll end up with a better, more productive, more respectful, less fractious, less fractious economy. And I think that the kind of person-centred culture chimes with say, patient-centred care in the NHS, for, for example. So the, it plays into the mood music of, of, of our time. So I think that will be a, a really interesting, stimulating contribution to the debate. I can't, can't wait, actually. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, I think it's, I really appreciate it. I think it's, it's also about safety. And if you look at, you know, if you're, 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 people listening to this will know that people who come forward who are being investigated or they're in a grievance process, they don't feel safe. There's no, there's, and psychological safety or a lack of safety, psychological safety it's one of the biggest barriers from people engaging with each other. It's very hard to get around the table of a manager or a, or, or a colleague when, when you don't feel safe. And I think what happens is that psychological safety, rather than trying to build it and, and, and create psychologically safe spaces for people to resolve issues, we continue to erode it. We don't, we're not doing it on purpose. 
But what happens, I think, is the union rep who are acting on the best interest of their, their, their member pull in one direction, and HR are now going into risk mitigation mode and they're pulling in another direction. Leaders are pulling in another direction to pretend time to protect the, the leadership and management function, all perceiving risk. And of course, what happens is it creates this great big hole as they're pulling apart. And who goes through the hole, Simon? Who's the person who goes flying through this great big hole that's created this cavern? that's created by these three key stakeholders pulling in different directions. It's, it's the employee. Yeah. And if we can put the employee back into the centre, as you described, patient-centred um, care, employee or person-centred ER and HR systems, put the employee back into the centre and then build around their needs. What is really fascinating is the need of the union rep, the need of the HR business partner, the need of the leader. They're all the same. And yeah. we, it gives the appearance that we're all trying to pull in different directions. We're not. We're all trying ultimately to create a safe, supportive, productive environment whereby the business and the organisation can thrive. And it's that commonality and that common ground that's often lost. So that's what, that, yeah, that's, that's what I'll be trying to tackle or, or shine a light on in the book. Well, I think recasting the mould of, of, of employee relations, industrial relations, there, there's, there's a challenge and, and an opportunity of COVID. Uh, people always say we should build back better or we can't go back to how we were in, in, in the future. But there's still relatively few people coming along and, and occupying the territory that says, as Beveridge did in the 1940s, this is the new social contract. And that's why I think conversations like the one we're, we're having now are just are, are really vital, really important, really interesting, really interesting stuff. So, well, David, thank you. I think I, we, could, we could talk all day, I'm sure, <laughs> so, so, several, several days. Uh, but I'm very grateful to you for, for sharing your, your views and your, uh, your analysis with, with our listeners. And I'm sure it was, will have struck real chords with many of them. Amazing. Well, I've really enjoyed it, Simon. And um, thank you so much for inviting me to be part of the podcast today. And uh, hopefully we'll get on that flight and uh, we'll go on that walk down the high street at some point, uh, uh, at some, at some uh, point in the future. <laughs> I, shall, I shall look forward to it. I shall look forward to it. Well, listeners, Mike, thanks to David for being so candid. And I hope you enjoyed that discussion. There was a lot of really, really interesting kind of visceral stuff in, in there. I mean, some of the quotes, I made a note of them as we were, we, we were going along. Um, whether, whether or not people agree with each other is irrelevant. The key is to disagree well. I, mean, I think we'd recognise that, wouldn't we? Um, if all we're rewarding is financial success, then that's all our CEOs will be driven to achieve. True, true. Um, but interestingly, perhaps most profoundly when he talks about a new social contract hmm that's interesting stuff a new social contract that will be the driver of successful businesses of the future are you listening chris o'shea of british gas did you hear that hmm and then things like grievance and disciplines are the antithesis to everything that makes a good human being i mean, you, he threw out a challenge there didn't he send me your case files of disciplines and grievances that have actually made a difference well i, I mean i've got a small library of them i have to say uh, i'm not short of content on, on on that one but i think genuinely there is some really interesting stuff in what david was saying and the ideas he was put, putting out and if we are you know if we are going to like build back better as it were if we are going to look at re shaping what work what good work looks like there are all sorts of elements to that this idea of employee-centered personnel policies is actually you know really really quite important i mean it could go terribly wrong i mean i remember when a couple of years ago accenture said they were going to scrap kind of performance reviews they were just going to do it on a 24 7 real-time basis and, and they thought this was a great idea but i'm thinking my god people are going to be under pressure all the time 
<laughs> there's going to be no break from a kind of big brother approach by the employer. You could say that's an employee-centred set of HR policies. I'm sure that's not what David had in mind, but you can see how how an idea can tip from from something that's good to something that's that's not quite easily. But you know, certainly a debate that will will run and run and is really important uh, as well. If you agree, if you disagree, if it raises thoughts, ideas, please do let us know. You can contact the show by email at unionjews at makesyouthink.com. You can tweet us at Jews Union. We'd love to have your views be part of the discussion. This is a, you know, this is a moving debate that is shaped by every one of us. Now, it's my great pleasure to welcome Professor Mel Sims to the show for her regular Thought for the Week. This week, Mel takes a look at evidence-based policy and just why it's important. And that question I asked at the head of the show, how many people, as a percentage of the working age population, are working at home? Recall the number you thought of at the first time because you're about to get the answer. So this week I've been thinking about data and how it informs policy in work and employment. And that's been informed by two unrelated events this week. The first was an exchange with my friend and colleague, Andrew Pakes, uh, who works for the Prospect Trade Union in the UK. Um, And the second was a sadder event, which was uh, that I attended the memorial event for Professor Willie Brown, who was a founding member um, of the Low Pay Commission, um, who sadly died in 2009 and who was a, a good colleague of mine. Andrew started my reflections by drawing my attention to data from the Office for National Statistics that's been released this week, which shows that 36% of working adults uh, worked at home exclusively during January, whereas nearly half of uh, working age adults travelled to work still in some form. Around 18% uh, were furloughed, so they were neither travelling to work nor Uh, nor working from home. And I don't know about you, but because everybody I interact with at work is also working from home, that number instinctively feels like an underestimate. It feels like an underestimate that around a third uh, of workers uh, are working at home. But it's not. We've got a lot of data sources that that reinforce that figure that actually more people are still travelling to work. And in general, as human beings, we can find it hard to imagine how life is for people who have very different experiences from us. And I think that matters a lot in policymaking. I can't tell you in the last 10 months how many times I've read articles um, predicting the death of the office or how many times I've been asked by journalists whether we'll all be working at home in the future. And that ONS data tells us why those questions really only apply to a minority of us. But because that minority includes people who write articles for newspapers and who work in think tanks and who are central to to policymaking, uh, it really matters a lot uh, to them. And that made me reflect on one of the big things that Professor Brown taught me, which was not to get sidetracked by puff pieces and fancy reports, but to really follow the evidence and to get out and about and talk to workers and managers about what their lives are actually like. Doing field work, getting good data, albeit virtually at the moment, allows us to really understand how complex the decisions that both workers and managers are making about work and employment really are. And it encourages us not to overgeneralize from our own experiences and the experiences of the people around us. It really pushes us uh, to use a sound evidence base in policymaking. And that really matters because, unfortunately, labour market policy tends to be made by people with good jobs. And we need policymakers to not get stuck in the mindset that all jobs are like mine. 
Thank you very much indeed, Mel. And I can certainly vouch for the legacy that the great Professor Willie Brown left for us. Now, if you want to find out more about the publications and ideas that David Little spoke about in our discussion with him, the sort of things that Mel was talking about in Thought for the Week, you can find links and signpostings to everything that we've spoken about in this episode on the companion blog to this podcast. You can find that on the makesyouthink.com website under the blogs section there. As I say, please do let us know what you think uh, by Twitter at Jews Union, emailing us at unionjews at makesyouthink.com. If you can rate us on the podcasting platform of your choice, that would be fabulous. Very much appreciated. So that's just about it for this week's episode. I really hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. Thank you so much for choosing to spend some of your valuable time with us. It's been our pleasure to have your company. Just want to give a shout out to the Labour Radio Podcast Network, which is a portal through which you can access over 70 trade union related podcast shows. LabourRadioNetwork.org is where you need to go for that. Uh, My thanks to Josiah, to Mel, to David, Most of all to you for listening. Whatever you're doing, stay safe. And here is the West Midlands region of the GMB with their take on Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. Great work, GMB. Solidarity and best wishes in your dispute. I'll see you next week on Union Juice. Bye for now. GMB, British gas, on strike, on mass, cold pickets won't deter, fighting for what's right. Can't fire and rehire, this situation's die, campaign's going strong, we will win the fight. Bully. Ridicule. Intimidated. Longer hours, lower pay, you can stop Haunted. this crusochet, love our jobs, but draw the line and work in all the time. On strike, giving back, we've helped Stress. food banks pack, weeding gardens, painting fences, don't cross a Harass. picket line. We didn't start the fire, Light it, but we tried to fight it. In lockdown, we kept on bringing heat to everyone. Social distance conversations working because we care. We want to do our best. The Union Dues podcast is presented by me, Simon Sapper. It is a Makes You Think production.